0: I'm Alice, and I'm Brett, and this is The Prosecutor's Legal brief. Welcome back to the Prosecutor's Legal Briefs. I'm your host, Alice, and I'm joined as always by my suppressive co-host, Brett. That's not a word is, and I just Googled it to make sure it was before I said it. Suppressive mm. is exactly what you think it would be. Someone who suppresses emotions, feelings, whatever, but you don't mm. actually do that. I was just going for the mm. pun. You know, you could push down. I love down, how the pun
1: is more important to you than the reality. Of
0: the obviously, situation. obviously it is. And if it took you this long to figure it out, Brett, then <laughs> <laughs> I go for the pun uh. every time. <laughs> Well, obviously, I love that pun. And the reason I love it is is today we are talking about something that's been in the news, especially in the Delphi case, even though it didn't actually happen in the Delphi case yet, and that is a motion to suppress. We've talked a little bit about motions to suppress in past episodes, including in our case progression episode, but we thought we would kind of dive more into what exactly is a motion to suppress? What are the standards? When do you bring it? What happens if it's granted, what if it's denied? And kind of what role it plays in the life of a case.
1: And it's funny how often sort of what's going on in the news affects what we end up talking about because, as I've said before, we live this stuff and so sometimes I forget that a lot of it is very foreign and alien to a lot of people and when this whole suppression issue came up there were people who were sending us messages they filed a motion to suppress what does that mean as we've said before with these big cases people tend to freak out every time anything happens and people were like is this rare one I told one person it's not rare and they said well everybody else is saying it's very rare so we thought (laughs) we would talk a little bit about this and I guess the best place to start is where it all starts which is the constitution in this case some of you may know the fourth amendment of the constitution protects the quote right of the people to be secure in their persons houses papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized so that is the fourth amendment and that really to this day defines how search and seizure suppression works. When we talk about suppression, what we're talking about is evidence. So the simplest, we've used this example before, but it's such a it's such an easy example. You're driving down the road, you get pulled over by a police officer, and that police officer searches your car and finds a gun. And maybe you're a felon, you can't possess a gun. So you get charged with that. You get charged with being a felon in possession of a firearm. Well, look, just on the facts You're in bad shape. You were in a car by yourself. We'll say it's your car. And right next to you, when the police officer searches, he finds a firearm. Those are bad facts. (laughs) You are probably in trouble. If you go to trial, you're going to lose. So really, the only hope you have is to try and suppress that evidence. And it means exactly what Alice just defined for us when she called me suppressive, which is you're going to hide it essentially you're gonna keep it out you're gonna make sure that that piece of evidence never goes before a jury and it's never considered when thinking about your guilt or innocence we've talked about this notion of a prophylactic rule before and when we talked about that before we talked about miranda and how you have these miranda rights and they're read to you and the reading of the miranda rights is a prophylactic rule that protects all your other rights like not incriminating yourself this is similar your right is not to have your basically wherever you have an expectation of privacy, your houses, your papers, your effects, your persons, to not have those just searched by government without a good reason and a warrant that's based on probable cause.
0: And so just because you may Bring an argument doesn't mean you can just kind of yell it in court like you can't use that evidence. It violates my constitutional rights. You have to file a motion with the court. And generally, if you ever want the court to do something, you have to move the court to do so. And that's why you file a motion. And that's where the motion to suppress comes in. It is filed. There's kind of a long period between the charging document, arraignment, that sort of thing. Arraignment at the beginning of the case is typically when the entire discovery File is turned over from the prosecution to the defense. And that's the first time, typically, that the defense is able to assess all of the evidence and be able to spot out pieces of evidence that they want to try and suppress, that there's an argument to suppress. So, usually, it's sometime after arraignment, the initial appearance, and trial. There's going to be a cutoff date that's usually in the case order, case management order. And that's a date that's set by the court by which to file all of your pretrial motions so that there's time for the court to hear argument on them if argument's necessary, to make a ruling if it's necessary so that it doesn't delay trial. But other than that, there's kind of a large swath of time in which you can file this motion. So usually the defense gets the prosecution's file and they start digging through it, looking for those red flags, the gun in a search, basically any really incriminating evidence, you're going to try to find some argument to keep it out. Because if in Brett's example, if you keep that gun out, case over, like prosecution's gonna probably drop the case. There's nothing they can really move forward on. It's as if that evidence was never uncovered in the case if you get it successfully suppressed. So if you have a good argument to suppress that evidence, then you as the defense will file a motion to suppress. And you have to articulate an argument as to why that particular evidence was uncovered while violating your defendant's constitutional rights. And it could be any piece of evidence. So so this is, you know, that's pretty broad ranging, but you're going to typically find it for the hot evidence, the key evidence, you know. We see that sometimes with like DNA matches. They want to keep out DNA matches because somehow the DNA swab was obtained unconstitutionally or something like that. And you can see why wanting to keep out a DNA match would be really important for the defense. That's going to be really compelling evidence when you have DNA from your defendant matching the murder weapon, for example. And almost anyone, I would venture to say, sitting in a jury who hears that information is going to want to convict the defendant. And that's why that piece of information would be really, really helpful to be suppressed if you were the defendant.
1: And I think that's one reason why... Just because somebody files a motion to suppress, they may come up with some argument, but it might not be a good one, and This sort of goes to the whole just because somebody files it doesn't mean it's going to be successful in the example Alice just used with DNA that may be your only hope. You may be in a situation where you know you're never going to trial because if that evidence comes in, you're going to lose so really it's either win the home run suppression motion and keep the evidence out or plead guilty and those are your two choices and frankly. A lot of cases, that's the way it goes. The trial is the suppression hearing, which, as we're going to talk about in a second, is a lot like a trial. A lot of the same evidence comes in. A lot of the same witnesses testify. The only difference is there's no jury there. There's a judge, because the judge is the one deciding this question of law, which is whether or not your rights are violated. We've talked about this before, fact finders versus a question of law. And even though there are facts to be determined in this setting, really you're applying sort of facts reasonable determination of the facts to the law and the law is what really matters. Now, some of you are probably sitting out there thinking, I don't really understand why if the DNA says they did it or the gun sitting next to them. Why are we getting rid of this evidence? And that's not a dumb question. The constitution does not say that that's the remedy. There's nothing in the constitution that says if these rights are violated, X has to happen. All it says is we're not going to violate those rights. And for a long time, suppression was not the remedy. That's just not what we did. And there was a lot of argument about how do you protect these rights. And some people thought, well, maybe you should be able to sue when it's violated. So, you know, you might go to prison because you had that firearm when you weren't supposed to have it, but you could sue the state for violating your rights. And in the 50s and 60s, as a lot of criminal law was developing that now we just think of as the way it's always been, Same time Miranda was coming around, the right to an attorney, that sort of thing. The courts generally settled on this notion of we're going to exclude the evidence. If it's a real violation and recognizing that exclusion is an extraordinary remedy, if it's a real violation of your rights, we're going to exclude the evidence. And that will be the way to protect the right. Because police officers and prosecutors will not want to violate people's rights because they won't want to lose the evidence. And so this will be a preventative measure. It will sort of use that as the stick to force people to enforce these rights. And it's become known as the fruit of the poisonous tree. So the poisonous tree is the violation of the rights. The fruit is the evidence that you found because of it. And so that's going to be suppressed. And it can be suppressed pretty far down the line. If you violate somebody's rights early on, I mean, say you violate somebody's Miranda rights and they tell you something and you use that information to find something else well because down the line this came from the violation of their miranda rights then that would also be suppressed it can be a really devastating thing if you lose one of these it's it's a very punitive measure if you lose these and often as alice said you're not just challenging i mean you might challenge relatively small stuff, but it's always going to be something that, you know, is probative of your guilt. And usually it's really probative of your guilt. So if you win one of those, a lot of times the charge just goes away altogether.
0: And that's a great point, Brett, when you say that just because a motion to suppress is filed doesn't mean there's there's a really, a real large concern that it will be granted. And that's because the bar for most motions in most courts is just that it can't be frivolous. And frivolous is not defined, right? It's a it's a pretty low bar, though. And so if you can make some sort of argument, if you could articulate some sort of argument, I would imagine emotion would be frivolous if you didn't cite any law and you didn't make any legal argument. You just said, this is a bad fact. It needs to be suppressed it looks really bad for my client for example but remember we're in a common law system and so how we argue legal arguments is by analogy to other cases and so unless you have a case that is exactly factually like your case where the Supreme Court of either your jurisdiction so the state or of the US Supreme Court has squarely like knocked that argument down Unless it's that situation, which is honestly like a needle in a haystack because fact patterns are all so specific to the situation, you can probably make some sort of argument by analogy, even if it's a weak argument. And realistically, because the motion to suppress stage is essentially like a mini trial and everything hinges on whether, you know, for the defense at least and for the prosecution on whether it will proceed past that stage, most courts will have a little bit of leeway when it comes to motions to suppress, to just rule on the papers as opposed to somehow sanction the attorneys for a frivolous motion. Because if it's that easy of an answer, they'll just rule on the motion, which is to deny it if it's actually frivolous, and write an opinion that can then be appealed should the defense want it to be appealed. And so I'm trying to think, you know, I've seen a lot of what I would kind of count as frivolous motions to suppress in my career. But I've never had a court or a judge call it a frivolous motion. But, you know, they can indicate very strongly, say, in a hearing that this is a very weak argument. But I always hear kind of from the judge, I know you have to make what arguments you can for your client, you know, attorney or counselor. And so that that's been my experience in terms of how low the bar is with respect to when you file a motion to suppress.
1: And frivolousness is almost entirely limited. (laughs) Frivolousness is almost entirely limited, it seems, to civil practice at this point. There is just this notion with judges that if you're a criminal defense lawyer and you want to file it and your client wants you to file it, go ahead and file it. We'll do the thing. You know, I've had some suppression hearings that were just absurdly <laughs> frivolous. And, and you know it is, the way you know it is, is when you get done with a hearing and like two days later you get the opinion.
0: <laughs> and the judges' questions means... can really, you know, like right. indicate it. They they make you have they make the record and they make the hearing. And that's the thing with motions to suppress is they almost always lead to a hearing. And sometimes, even though you ha- know you have a weak argument, you may file that motion to suppress to force the agent to get on the stand so that they're having to testify things under oath. And sometimes it's almost an investigative method for the defense because it's hard to say things perfectly every time. So if they can find some sort of inconsistency in the testifying agent, that's great for their case. Even if they lose the motion to suppress, they're kind of getting arrows in their quiver for trial. Or they get to hear kind of the best witnesses for the prosecution and get a preview of trial. It's almost a win-win situation for the defense. Even if they lose the motion to suppress, they are gaining something in preparation for trial.
1: And I'm so glad you pointed that out, Alice, because this is something I like to come back to. Because people... Just don't recognize the value to the defense to having these kind of hearings. It's like the preliminary hearings. Prosecutors don't want to have preliminary hearings, not because they're afraid of the hearings or they don't want to show their evidence, because it's an opportunity for the defense to get sort of, as Alice said, a a first preview of everything. And suppression hearings, because they often involve so much of the evidence and the people who collected it, the officers and everything else, they really are a great opportunity for the defense to get to go ahead and question people. I had one once where, and I was second chair on it, so I wouldn't have to do much talking, but basically it was a dog sniff case. And the dog, bless him, he just he just didn't do a very good job at dog school. so he like barely passed dog school. like he he was just right on the edge. And so the defense attorney's trying to quote unquote suppress the dog sniff. He knew he was gonna lose because the standard is really low. I mean he passed, so that's really all that matters. But you could just tell, you know he was thinking through, a future like a challenging sort of like we always talk about challenging the police challenging their methods like all that kind of stuff right and you could just tell he was doing that and you see that happen a lot alice had one once and i won't you know i don't want to spoil your story alice but you remember the the lineup one that we had that time i think that was actually a preliminary hearing but nevertheless it was a similar type situation where You had to do the lineup, and the lineup was, like, not that great.
0: (laughs) Oh, oh. Yeah, basically, like, you know, you're supposed to kind of generate a a lineup by similar characteristics. So if your person has a beard, you're supposed to kind of generate a lineup of at least several people in the lineup with beards. And I can't remember. I can kind of see it in my mind, but, like, there was a lineup of, you know, I don't know, eight or ten potential people, and one of them was the defendant. I think the defendant, like, had a beard, and everyone else was, like, you know no beard bald you know different race that sort of thing and it was like so obvious that it was the defendant that it was not a great you know lineup you don't want it to be like a blaring this is your guy clearly
1: so yeah there's a huge value there's a huge value to doing that opportunity for the defense to see evidence to sort of preview arguments there's all sorts of reasons you want to do it the sort of how and And why it works read the constitutional provision to you and it really lays it out for you. I mean, it basically gives you sort of the areas that can't be searched without a warrant. Those areas are areas that you tend to have A right to privacy, an expectation of privacy, an expectation that people just aren't randomly going to be going through your stuff. The searches and seizures have to be reasonable. They can't be unreasonable. No warrants will issue without probable cause. The probable cause has to be supported by an oath or affirmation, and it has to describe the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So what you inevitably see... You have a case where you need a search warrant. You know, you're going to have your officers going to write out a search warrant. In their affidavit, they're supposed to provide enough evidence that a judge would find that there is probable cause to believe there's evidence of a crime at the location to be searched. So some things that they might look at. One of them is, is the information stale? So say your officer says, six months ago, we had an informant who saw cocaine in this house. Judge is going to say, That is stale information. That was six months ago. Who knows what's happened since then? That's not good enough. Imagine the officer says, we know there's cocaine somewhere on the property. That's all they say. That may not be enough particularity. The judge might say, look, I'm not going to let you search every single house, outhouse, car, people, whatever on somebody's property. You're going to have to give me more. Another thing might be, you say, we are looking for firearms at the property. Say you think this person's a firearms dealer. Well, if you walk into that building and you see some cocaine, you might want to back out and get another warrant and say, while executing the search warrant, we saw some cocaine. We now would like a search warrant that allows us to search more deeply for things like drugs. Or if you see, like, a whole bunch of cell phones on the counter, you might want to get a warrant and say, look, we saw a whole bunch of cell phones. That's indicative of drug activity. We now want a warrant for cell phones. You have to have that kind of detail in your warrant when you are seeking to be able to search some place. And if you don't, that's the kind of thing That can result in a motion to suppress at some point. We talk about this reasonable expectation of privacy a lot. And that's sort of one of the bases that a lot of people use to challenge something. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're dating somebody and you're spending the night at their house. And the police find out that you're spending the night at their house. And they think, aha, he's not at his house. We're going to go in and we're going to search the place and they search the place and they find some cocaine and they arrest you for possession of cocaine. Well, you can say, look, even though I wasn't at my house, I had a reasonable expectation of privacy as an overnight guest in this place. And that's one of the factors the courts look at. And the court might say, you know what? You're right. You did. And because you had a reasonable expectation of privacy. The government should have got a search warrant. They didn't get a search warrant, so we're going to suppress that. And that's one of the first big questions you always have in these is, do you actually have a reasonable expectation of privacy where you are? If you're in a public place, you know, if you're standing in a park waving around a bag of cocaine, guess what? We don't need a search warrant. That's not a reasonable expectation of privacy. If you're standing in your bedroom waving around a bag of cocaine, then you are. And that's always a big fight that is one of the things people are going to fight about in these hearings.
0: So obviously you've seen in a lot of probably these true crime types of cases that are in the news that a warrant is not needed because they ask someone, hey... These girls have gone missing near your property. Do we have your consent to search your property? And the person can consent to have the police or law enforcement come search their property. Or in a traffic stop, even though there's no probable cause, you know, there's no smell of marijuana, there's no reason for probable cause for the police to search a car, the police sometimes may say, hey, can I take a look inside your trunk? And if the person consents to it, then they do not need a search warrant. However, Brett, we have been in these situations before where we will have a defendant who consents to a search, typically a car, because traffic stops happen a lot. And maybe it's in a particular part of the neighborhood and maybe this particular person is known to the police to have, you know, illegal substances. And so they they do ask for a search. And for some reason, this person consents. And a lot of people consent, by the way, when law enforcement asks them to search. You do not have to consent. they You have a right to have them have a search warrant in order to search anything you have a right to privacy in. But... We have seen situations where even though a defendant consents, they, the defense will later on challenge that consent with a motion to suppress and say, even though we consented, you really did need a, a search warrant. Nevertheless, that's a harder burden of proof to make there, but I have seen kind of vigorous argument by defendants and, you know, almost losing a motion to suppress when there has been consent in order to search. So in other words, If the police asked you to search your house or your car or whatever, you do not have to say say yes, yes. (laughs) 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 says the prosecutor. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it really is amazing how many people say yes. I I mean, I get it. I'm the same way. Right. Like if anyone asks me anything, like, can I use your phone? I know you're supposed to say no to like a stranger to use your phone. But I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. What else? Can I make you some coffee while you're at it? (laughs) <laughs> and I mean it's
1: amazing in these cases how often people ask. The officers will ask and, and people who know, you know, they've got drugs or they've got a gun will say yes. And it is I don't know if they just think by by saying yes, the police will be like, ah never mind. I don't want to. No, if they say if they ask you and you say yes, they're gonna search. And one thing that's interesting about this is we always talk to our law enforcement partners and just urge them to always get a warrant if you can, because it's so much better to have a warrant than to fight this on the back end. An area that you guys might be familiar with is location data on phones. There's been all this Supreme Court action on location data, and there was sort of a, I want to say it's, it's an outlier case that everybody cites as if it's not an outlier called Carpenter. It's out of Supreme Court, and it's about a very specific kind of location data that you have, That's like super specific, more specific than GPS tracking. And the court said, you can't just ask your cell phone provider for it if you're the police. You can't do that. You got to get a warrant. And that's true. Now, you got to get a warrant for that very specific type of information. But it's not that you can't get it. You can get anything if you have a warrant. If you have a warrant and you can say, we got probable cause, you can get it. The question that's always more interesting is, can I get it without probable cause? So things I can get basically just because I want it. You know, if I have any indication that you're involved in some sort of criminal activity and I want to see your bank records, I can get them. You know, I can just subpoena them. I just ask the bank, send me this person's records and they have to send them. And this is the way it works, right? Third party data, generally speaking, you remember that reasonable expectation of privacy and we talked about waving the bag of cocaine around in the park. Well, the idea is if you're giving your information to a third party, then you have lost your expectation of privacy because you shared it with somebody. So you then can't say to the, to the government, no, 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 you can't look at it. And that's one of the really difficult areas. That's an entire legal brief on its own. But that's an example of when you could get information without a warrant. Another example, Alice did consent, exigent circumstances. So let's say somebody is in immediate danger you think we need to know this information right now in those cases you can get information without a warrant and you can use it later on you know an example of this there was a case and in, in one of the first cases a supreme court case where basically there was a guy he was holding somebody hostage or he was holding people hostage in a in a convenience store and the police managed to sort of surround him and and sort of sneak up on him when he didn't have his gun in his hand. He'd put his gun down <laughs> for some reason. And one of the police officers says, you know, with a gun on him, where's the gun? And the guy points. He points to, like, where he's put it on a shelf. And the argument was that this was like a custodial interrogation. He didn't read him his Miranda rights, so therefore that should be suppressed. And the court said, no, that was an exigent circumstance because it was... They needed to know where the gun was, and they need to know where it was immediately. So we're going to allow that in. We're not going to suppress that. But you got to have something like that to be able to use that as an example. Another one's abandoned property. had a case once where a guy, he goes to the a hotel. He has a hotel. He <clears> has I'm like. Not, two I'm not going to talk a about a
0: laptop that was abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <I> keep going.
1: <laughs> so he's at a hotel, and he he's staying there for a couple nights and he's got like a suitcase full of cocaine. And at some point he like leaves the hotel room to go do something. And he realizes the police are watching him and he takes off running and he gets away. So he's, he's off and he's escaped. Well, the police at that point ask the hotel people to go ahead and open the room so they can go in the room, they go in the room, they find the cocaine. Eventually they catch him. He gets arrested Here's the cocaine. He's going, to, he's going to prison. Well, he challenges that, and his argument at the suppression hearing was, I had that hotel room for another night, so I still had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the hotel room for at least another night. So the fact that you went into my hotel room before I was overdue meant you violated my reasonable expectation of privacy in my hotel room, which you generally have. You should have got a warrant. You didn't get it. Suppress it. And the court said, no. He had obviously abandoned the property and abandoned the hotel room when he took off running. And at that point, he lost that sort of reasonable expectation of privacy in the, in the, the bag so the police could come and search it without any concern.
0: So there's... Also, you guys have probably heard of situations where since the police, you know, or the law enforcement cannot search without probable cause, maybe they get someone else who is not law enforcement to act on their behalf. So let's talk about that hotel room. That hotel room, the person is still living in it. Maybe it's an extended stay and they have paid for two weeks and they're still in, you know, within the two weeks of that hotel stay and the police have been watching it and they think that there's drugs or guns or something else inside that hotel room. Now, the police, with, a probable cause affidavit and a search warrant cannot go into that hotel room but what if they said to the cleaning lady who goes in every single day to vacuum take out the towels change the sheets say hey cleaning lady when you go in look around and look for drugs look for guns for us and let us know what you see or take it out for us is that okay because technically it's not law enforcement going into the room no So that obviously would be a giant loophole that would allow law enforcement to violate your constitutional rights just by having like a one degree of separation. That degree of separation doesn't count because essentially that cleaning lady was asked to be an agent of law enforcement. And so you have an expectation of privacy, not only from like direct law enforcement, people who wear the badge, but if they use other people to act as extensions of themselves. We see this also say within jails or prisons, right? Sometimes you'll hear about jailhouse snitches. Sometimes there will be other prisoners who are maybe working on behalf of the cops to spy on their prison mates. Something like that. That gets into kind of very murky water, whether those people are acting as agents on behalf of law enforcement. Because you can see how that would not be fair, right? There could be this like veneer of constitutional protection as long as the person actually moving the hands, even if the puppeteer is law enforcement, the puppet itself is not law enforcement. If they were allowed to violate your constitutional rights, then you essentially wouldn't have any protections in that instance. So I've seen some arguments of people saying you know why don't they just ask that you know third party who is not you know the, the roommate uh uh or not actually the roommate could that that's a different situation the cleaning lady to go into the hotel and do the search for the police there's no violation there but in fact there is
1: so i think what you can see is this is a really complicated area of the law it's a it is a vast area of the law there are a lot of different ways this can come up what this should also indicate to you is these are not rare. You have motions to suppress a lot. I've seen that between 10 to 20% of cases have motions to suppress. That might not seem like a lot to you, but remember the vast majority of cases are so straightforward that it's like arrest, there's really no questions, take the plea deal, get it done. I mean, 10 to 20% of cases is actually a lot of those the number of suppressions that are going to be successful are vanishingly small very small number and in fact i think probably most suppressions that are successful in the trial at the trial level are eventually overturned on appeal because obviously the government can appeal that so it's very rare it can be very powerful and if you're successful it can win your case but it's not often going to be successful usually you have a warrant Warrants are really hard to overcome. You can have something called a Frank's hearing, where basically you have to show that the officer either lied or was misleading or left off some some material information that somehow fooled the judge into granting the, the warrant, even though they shouldn't have. That bar is like through the roof. Almost impossible to show that. So they're not often successful, but they're not rare in practice, and we see them a lot. And frankly, if you're a prosecutor your practice may be vastly more dealing with suppression motions than it ever is dealing with trials. Because as I said, usually when you enter suppression motion, that's the point where the defense attorney comes and says, okay, you know, we sort of shot our shot and we missed. So now we'd like some sort of deal and the case kind of goes away. This probably won't be the last time we talk about this. There are so many intricacies into it. If we mention something you thought was interesting, you want us to do sort of a whole episode on, we can do that just given that this is going to be an issue in delphi and wouldn't shock me if there's some suppression motions in the idaho case as well thought it was something to go ahead and get out in front of you guys
0: look at us one step at the game here Well, thank you, Brett. And thank you guys for always giving us great topics to talk about. If you have any questions, feel free to ask us. Write us at prosecutorspod at gmail.com. You can find us on all the social medias on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at prosecutorspod. And we love great discussion from you guys. You always bring up great questions. And if we've missed something here, we'll follow up with another episode. Well, with that said, Brett, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Just that it's always a pleasure, Alice. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Brett. Well, thank you guys. And until next time, I'm Alice. And I'm Brett. And this is the Prosecutor's Legal Briefs. my brain is shut off what else do we need to talk about <laughs> 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 I was like I was like staring into space and I was like come back <laughs> but I think what you like, can oh, uh, go, oh ahead.
1: go ahead go ahead no, were you gonna say was, no you were so excited go for it no
0: no no I'm, I'm just excited about everything
1: oh ah. well I was gonna sort of wrap it up so oh yeah go ahead so in a butt okay uh, so
0: <laughs> <laughs> go ahead nope I got nothing to say <laughs> Look, the synapses are not all firing, okay? It's okay, it's okay.